My name is Josh Stewart, and I am one of the associate pastors here at First Baptist. And I have the great honor and privilege of communicating God's word with you today while Cliff is off on a much-deserved trip with about 20 other people to England and Scotland. And I just, I know a lot of you know this already, but I want you to realize how hard of a worker that you guys have as lead pastor here in Cliff. It is incredible how many hours that he spends in the office and how many hours he spends visiting people and caring for people. And he's so humble and he's so godly. And we are so blessed to have Cliff Morris as our lead pastor here at First Baptist. So I, I know a lot of you know that already, but for those who don't, he's amazing. And if anyone deserves a paid-for trip to England and Scotland, um, it's Cliff and Wendy. So um, next time you see him, just let him know how grateful we are to have him here at First Baptist. Um, let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercies and your faithfulness that is new every single morning. Lord, our greatest desire today is your glory. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would fill this house, that you would come, that you would move among us, that you would move in your word as it is proclaimed, that you would move in the members, Lord, as they hear what your word has to say to them. And we pray, Lord, that you are glorified in our lives. Our greatest desire as believers should be to honor and glorify you in everything that we do. And so we pray, Lord, that today that, that we have a deeper heart for your glory. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you and doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that today they will see how beautiful you are. That they will see how satisfying you are to our souls. And they will see that nothing in this world will ever compare to knowing you and having a relationship with you. You're a mighty God, and we ask you to do mighty things this morning, all for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom and for the edification of your church. It's in the awesome, mighty, powerful, saving name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation before that somebody got something that they didn't deserve. Maybe somebody applied for a job and you thought, there's no way that that person's gonna get a job. Yet they land the job. Maybe it's a coworker that's up for a promotion and you think there's no way that this person is gonna get the promotion. They're lazy, they're not even a very good worker. However, the person ends up getting the promotion. Or maybe there's a team in the Super Bowl that plays horrible for three quarters and they find themselves down 28 to three. And you think, there's no way that this team deserves to win the Super Bowl. They're, they played horrible for three quarters. Yet, they have a miraculous comeback in the fourth quarter against your beloved team. And take the games to overtime, and they win the game. And you don't think they deserve it at all. I still don't think they deserve it at all. <laughs> or maybe somebody got a grade on an assignment that you didn't think they deserved to get. I don't know about you guys, about your schooling experience, but um, I was a communication major at Kennesaw State. And one thing that was very important to the communication department is something called group projects. And we had a professor who was high up in the department, and he said that it was his goal to do a group project in every single one of his classes. He didn't do any group projects when he was in college, and apparently that was horrible. And so he wanted to do group projects in all of his classes, and the other communication professors agreed with that. And so almost every single one of our, group pro single one of our classes, we had group projects. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a group project in high school or in college, but in group projects, there is always that one person, that one girl and that one guy who does not pull their weight. And I know you guys agree because people are nodding their heads while I say this. Even if you can pick the group or the teacher can assign the group, it does not matter. 
there's always that one person that doesn't pull their weight. I remember um, we had a senior assignment. It was a group project for our senior communication class. And it actually was a really cool project. We actually went into a local church. It was a larger church in the Atlanta area. And we actually evaluated how they communicated. How they communicated effectively, how they communicated poorly, ways that they could improve their communication. Well, there was a group of five of us, good friends of mine, still good friends of mine today. But there was that one guy who was not pulling his weight in the group project. He would play on his computer when we were trying to meet and do stuff for the assignment. He was more concerned about hanging out with us than he was actually getting work done. But as you can imagine, because this is how group projects work, he got the same letter grade on the group project that we did, even though he didn't pull his weight. Even though he didn't deserve the grade, he still got it. But the opposite happens in our lives as well. Not only do people get something that they don't deserve, but we have people who don't give something that we feel like they do deserve. We have someone who applies for a job, and we feel like they're a shoe-in, yet they don't get the job. Or we are up for a promotion at work, and we think there's no way that I won't get this promotion. I've worked hard for so many years, yet we don't get the promotion. Or we even see it in our legal system as well, is that we have people who commit these horrible crimes. They're convicted of these horrible crimes. Yet we see that their sentence is very minimal jail time or maybe community service. We think they deserve so much more than that. Why are they getting off so lightly? And so we have moments in our lives that people get what they don't deserve or people don't get what they do deserve. And we begin to ask the question, where's justice, right? Where's justice in our legal system? Where's justice in our school systems? Where's justice in our society? Justice at our jobs? Where is justice? And if we're honest with ourselves, we ask that question about those issues, deep down in our hearts, we're actually asking an even bigger question. And that question is, where is the God of justice? If God is sovereign over all, if he's king of kings and lord of lords like we believe, and he can control every single situation, then where is his justice in these situations? Where is the God of justice? If you've ever asked yourself that question, you're not alone. We're going to see in our passage today in the book of Malachi that Israel and Malachi's day were asking themselves the exact same question. Where is the God of justice? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be in the last verse of chapter 2 and the first six verses of chapter 3. And we're going to focus on where is the God of justice? Now I've got good news for you. When that question was asked of God, he had a great response, and he tells us that he is a just God. And we're going to examine today how just he is as a God. But not only is he a just God, but we're going to see today how loving our God is, and how his love and his character does not change. And so we're going to have three points today that we're going to focus on that's going to kind of outline our passage today. The, the first thing we're going to see is that God is just because he purifies sinners. The second thing we're going to see is that God is just because he judges sinners. And thirdly, we're going to see today that God is loving because he does not change. So we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to examine how just our God is. But we're also going to see how loving our God is as well. So let's start in, in verse 17 of chapter 2. This is what it says. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? And so Malachi is coming to the people and he says to them, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Now that word wearied can also be translated as annoyed. You're annoying God right now with your words. 
The things that you're saying to him are annoying him. He's wearied by them. But as we see, when a claim is made of these people, they often challenge God and they say, how have we wearied him? What have we possibly done to annoy him? They were oblivious to what they're doing. This kind of reminds me of when I was a little kid. I have older sisters, and they're about 10 years. There's three of them. One's 8 years, 10 years, and 12 years older than me. And they would have friends over. And as a young kid, I would want to hang out with their friends when they were there. And I'd be jumping on top of them and wanting to play with them. And my sisters would get so annoyed with me. They would be wearied by what I was doing. And they would come to me and say, Josh, you're annoying us right now. Like, please leave. And I was so oblivious. I couldn't understand why a 17- and 18-year-old wouldn't want to hang out with a snotty-nosed, hyper six-year-old. Like, why wouldn't they want to be with me? Like, I was oblivious to the situation. My feelings would get hurt. <laughs> but looking back now, I wouldn't even want to do that as an 18- or 17-year-old. I was oblivious to the situation. And in Israel, they were oblivious to what they're doing. They can't imagine that they're questioning their words to God or annoying Him. But look how he says why they're annoying Him. Second half of verse 17. This is by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so God says, you know why your words are weary to me? Because you're saying that I delight in evil, and that evil pleases me. And you're asking me, where's my justice? Where is the God of justice? Now, if you've been with us as we've walked through the book of Malachi, or if you've even read the book of Malachi before, I mean, you realize that in Malachi's day, Israel is greatly sinning against God. I mean, sin is rampant in that day. We saw in chapter 1 that the people were sinning against God because they were challenging him because they said that he didn't love them. We see that the priests were sinning against God. We see that the common person was sinning against God. That the people were supposed to bring sacrifices to God, these unblemished animals. But instead, they were bringing God their leftovers, animals that were sick and disformed. And sacrifice was a form of worship, so they were sinning against God in their worship. The priests were sinning against God because when they would bring the sacrifices to them, the priests were saying they're supposed to examine them and make sure that they were acceptable. But the priests were accepting all the sacrifices. It didn't matter. They were sinning against God. We see in chapter 2 that the men were sinning against the women and being cruel to them. And we see that the husbands were divorcing their wives and marrying women that worshipped false gods. So sin was rampant in the day. Yet Israel has the audacity to come to God and say, where is your justice? Do you delight in people who do evil? Because if anyone was guilty, it was Israel. They were guilty for their sins. And so God was wearied by this. He was annoyed with their words because the guilty ones were challenging God's justice. And so God says, okay, you want to talk justice? Let me tell you about my justice. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, he begins to talk about his justice. And the first thing we see is that a God is a just God because he purifies sinners. Okay, it says in verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So the first thing that we see is done here is God says that he's going to send a messenger. And what this messenger is going to do is he's going to prepare the way before him. See, what kings would do in ancient times is they would often send a messenger before them. And what this messenger's job was was to go and prepare the people for the arrival of the king. 
they would go before the king to a certain place or town, and they would prepare the place. They would prepare the people for the arrival of the king. And so what God is saying here is, I am sending my messenger, and my messenger will prepare the way before me. So a messenger is coming, and this one will prepare the way before God. Does this sound familiar to anybody in this room of who this might be? John the Baptist, right? That's what it sounds like. And commentaries and pastors and biblical scholars agree. I agree that this is talking about John the Baptist. 400 years before John the Baptist ever came on this earth, God predicts he's going to come. As part of God's justice, he sends John the Baptist to prepare the way before the Lord. And we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it talks about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. That he had a ministry, John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of repentance and baptism. That he was telling people to come and to repent and be baptized. And he said that I am preparing the way for the Messiah. So as part of God's just plan, he sends a messenger. But he doesn't just send one messenger. Look who else he sends. Look at the second half of verse 2. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the first messenger is coming to prepare the way. And we see a second messenger is coming. And this messenger is referred to as the messenger of the covenant. Or the messenger of the promise. Or the promised messenger. Also the messenger who kept the covenant. The righteous messenger. The messenger who would not sin. Who would do nothing wrong. The righteous messenger was coming. And look what it says. It says this messenger will be the Lord whom you seek. And you will come into the temple. Which is God's temple. And it will be called his temple. So this perfect, righteous messenger of the covenant is coming. He's referred to as God himself, and he is coming into the temple. Now, who does this sound like? Jesus, right? 400 years before Jesus comes on this earth, Malachi, God proclaims to Malachi that Jesus is coming. The messenger of the covenant is coming. God himself will appear in his temple. The perfect, righteous messenger. So what is this messenger going to do? He's prepared the way by John the Baptist. Jesus Christ comes. And then let's see what Jesus is coming to do. In verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And so two rhetorical questions are asked to the people. This messenger of the covenant, the righteous messenger is coming. And who can stand when he appears? Who can endure his coming? And it's a question that was asked in the answer was expected by all of Israel. No one can stand before the messenger of the covenant. No one who is wicked. No one who has sinned against God. No one who has ever broken the covenant. There's no way that can stand before him. He's God himself, the perfect righteous one. So no one can stand when he comes. No one can endure his coming. No one with wickedness or with sinfulness. So if no one is able to stand before him, then what must he do? What must he do to allow people to stand before him? Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. 
So the messenger of the covenant is coming, and it said that he is a refiner's fire, and he's like fuller's soap. That's kind of hard, I think, for us to understand. So there's another translation, a modern translation, that, that says this in the second half of verse 2. And I think it will give us a little better understanding of what it is saying. It says, for he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. So Jesus is coming, and he'll be a blazing fire that refines metal, or like strong soap that bleaches clothes. See, what Jesus is coming to do is he's coming to refine and he's coming to purify. Now, most of us are pretty familiar with the bleaching process, right? Most of us have bleached something in our lives, whether it's clothes, whether it's towels, whether it's linens, whether it's dirty toys. And we know what bleach does is bleach purifies something. It cleans something. We put bleach on something that is white because we want to remove the stains. We want to clean it. We want to purify it. And so it's saying that Jesus is coming to, to bleach us like strong soap. But another thing that he's coming to do is to refine us like a blazing fire refines metal. And most of us probably aren't as familiar with that process. But what that process was is somebody would come and present a metal. We'll say it was gold or silver. And we'll say they would bring silver to a silversmith. And what the silversmith would do is he would put the silver underneath a blazing fire. And as he put it under the fire, it would get warmer and warmer. And as the metal became warmer, the impurities would come to the top of the silver, and he would scrape off the impurities. He would keep it underneath the fire, and the impurities would continue to rise, and he would continue to scrape them off and scrape them off. And he would know that the silver was ready or that the gold was ready when he could look at it and see his reflection. And so we see that being refined with a blazing fire or being bleached with soap, that's an intense process, an extreme intense process. I mean, think about it. When you put something in the washer that doesn't need to be bleached, you ruin your clothes. I mean, even the process of bleaching something is intense. And something being refined by a blazing fire is extremely intense. Jesus is coming to purify, and he's coming to purify in a way that is very intense. Now, this might sound kind of crazy, but that actually brings me so much comfort to know that. It brings me so much comfort to know that Jesus is coming with a fire that's going to refine. And the reason why that brings me so much comfort is because what I deserve is for Jesus to come with a fire that consumes me and annihilates me. Because of my sinfulness against God, what I deserve is God's holy, righteous anger. For Jesus to come to annihilate me and to cast me off for all of eternity, separated from him. That's exactly what I deserve. And anyone who has sinned against God, that's what we deserve. But instead, it says Jesus will come and he will refine you. He will purify you. Now, what does it mean that he's coming to refine or that he's coming to purify? Well, first of all here, this is talking about salvation. This is talking about he's going to purify us. He's going to refine us in the presence of God. That means that Jesus is coming. He's going to remove all of our impurities. He's going to bleach us white and remove all of our stains. That Jesus is coming to make us pure. And he does that through salvation. And he accomplished that when he came on this earth. The messenger of the covenant came. The righteous one. And he was perfect in all of his ways. And because he was perfect in all of his ways, he did not deserve to be punished by God. He did not deserve to be judged for his sins because he was perfect. Yet out of his great love, 
He went on the cross and he died. He didn't die for his sins because he was perfect, but he was punished for you and I's sins. God's justice was put on hand that our sins, the sins of anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, was placed on Jesus. And Jesus experienced God's holy wrath that you and I deserve, the punishment that our sins deserve. And he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead three days later, victorious over death, over sin, and over Satan. The victorious king. And so anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord to save him, anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, are purified of their sins, or bleached, wiped, all the impurities are removed. And they have a right standing before God. Their presence before God is pure. And we see that he's talking about here because he goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he talks about the sons of Levi. He says it's only after the messenger of the covenant refines and purifies the sons of Levi that they're able to bring sacrifices that are righteous. That they're able to come before God in a pleasing way. It is only after they've been purified and purified by the messenger of the covenant. See, we saw earlier in chapter 1 that the sacrifices they were bringing to God were impure sacrifices. Because they were sinning against God. But we see that after Jesus purifies them, then they're able to bring sacrifices of worship. Then they bring sacrifices that are pleasing to God and that are righteous. Because what a sacrifice is, is an act of worship. And it's only after Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins, when we trust in Him and believe in Him as our Lord and Savior, it's only then that we can have our sins forgiven and that we can offer worship that is righteous to Him and that is pleasing to Him. And so we see the first thing Jesus came, He came to purify and to make us righteous. And we see that's part of God's justice is because Jesus was punished for our sins so that you and I wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. But I think He's talking about something else when He talks about this refiner's fire and this soap that bleaches. See, once we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have right standing before Him. Our relationship with God is restored. We are perfect before God. We have eternal life that is secure. Salvation, or the theological term for that is justification. We're just before God. We're innocent before God because of what Jesus has done. But after we become a Christian, even though we're righteous before God, because we're stained with sin and we have a sinful nature, throughout our Christian life, we're continually battling with sin. We're battling with the desires of sin and doing things that we don't want to do. And there's a process that God uses to shape us and to mold us to look more like Jesus. That process, the theological term for that is sanctification. We're just becoming more like Jesus. And so God wants to mold us and to shape us that our character will look like Jesus, that our thoughts will look like Jesus, that our attitudes, the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, and all of these things God uses to shape us and to mold us throughout our Christian life. And so when Jesus comes, he refines us and makes us pure before the Father. But he also continues to mold us and to shape us to look more like him. Like how the silversmith would remove the impurities continuously until he could see his reflection. Jesus continues to mold us and to shape us until he looks down at us and he can see his reflection in us. And often... Christ refines us through sanctification, and he does this in very challenging ways. He does this through health issues. He does this through difficulties, finding jobs or difficulties when we're in a job. 
He does this through loss of loved ones. He does this through struggling marriages. He does this through struggling child rearing. He does this when things are hard and things are challenging in our lives. He does it through financial hardships. When a hardship is going on in your life, God is typically molding you and shaping you to look more like Jesus. In the hard situations that are out of our control, like loss of loved ones, or trying to find jobs, or maybe financial hardships that we encounter, he's teaching us to love him more. He's teaching us to trust him more, to rely on him more, to show us that he is truly all that we need. And he's using those moments, the hard moments, to refine us and to mold us and to shape us, to look more like him. But then those other situations that are, that are challenging and that are hard, because we're sinful human beings. Our job situation is hard. Our, our marriage is hard. Raising our children is challenging. Encounters our family members. And often during those moments, what God is doing is he's exposing the sin in your life. Have you ever asked the question, maybe this relationship is difficult because I'm sinning in this relationship? Maybe my marriage is hard because I'm sinning instead of continually pointing to my spouse? Maybe my job situation is not very good because I'm sinning against co-workers and against management. Because often in our lives, God puts us in challenging situations to expose our sin. See, the greatest desire as a believer should be to look more like Jesus in everything that we do. And in our situations, God is continuing to mold us and to shape us to look more like Jesus. And he uses hard situations to refine us and to shape us. And so my question to you today is, how is God refining you? If you are not a Christian today, maybe God is calling you to faith in Jesus for the very first time. He's opening to your eyes that you need to be refined, that you need to be purified from all of your sins. And only the messenger of the covenant, the righteous one, can do that. And then you can worship God. Because my question to you today, if you're not a believer, and you're living this Christian life on your own, or trying to live this Christian life on your own, How's that going for you? Because I would imagine it's very frustrating and very challenging. It's because you need to be refined. Your heart needs to be made pure. It needs to be bleached. And your purities need to be removed. And only Jesus can do that. Now, if you're a believer today, how is Christ refining you right now through the sanctification process or the process of becoming more like Jesus? In the hard situations in your life, instead of asking God, why are you doing this? What if we started asking questions, God, what are you trying to show me through this? What are you trying to show me about your love and about your grace and how great and awesome you are and that you're the only one that I need? How are you trying to re reveal the sin in my life? What are you doing to expose the sin? Am I sinning in this situation? Do I need to repent and have deeper faith in who you are and what you've done? So how is Christ refining you today? How is he molding you and shaping you to look more like Jesus? Ask the question, God, what, is, what are you doing through these hard situations? And so the first thing we see is that God came and he's just because he purifies his sinners. All those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have been purified. But the second thing we see here is that he's just because he judges sinners. Look what it says down in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the idolater, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hard worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. 
against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God's judgment is coming down. Every single sin that is ever committed will be held accountable. Every sin that is ever done on this earth by anybody will be judged by God. Now the great news is, is those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ was punished for their sins. That God judged Jesus instead of judging you. What a great and awesome God that we have, that he refines you and purifies you. And that all of his holy, righteous anger and his wrath that your sins deserve, that you deserve, are placed on Jesus. Man, how amazing he is, how undeserving his love is. How great the Father's love is towards us, like we sang earlier. But what about those who don't accept Jesus? Who reject this awesome messenger of the covenant that is coming? Well, because God is a just God. His justice will come down. And we see that he will judge them and he will judge them swiftly. And he gives a list of all the types of people, the sorcerers, the ones who... who are, you know, mean to the sojourner, the ones who, you know, don't give people the wages that they deserve. But then he says at the very end of that, all those who do not fear me. See, a fearing God is a respect and a love for God. And, and if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's a sign that you fear God and that you love him. But for those who do not fear God, who do reject Jesus, they'll be judged. And this judgment is a harsh judgment. And it's a judgment that is fair, completely fair. But it's a judgment that God comes and he judges you for your sins. And then he condemns you for your sins. It tells us in Revelation. And then he casts you into the lake of fire, into hell for all of eternity. To experience separation from God and his holy, righteous anger. It is terrifying, God's judgment. But it's exactly what each one of us deserve because of our sins. When you, serve, when you sin against an eternal God, you deserve eternal punishment. And that's what our sins do to us. And so for those in this room, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's another plea. I don't want you to be judged for your sins. God doesn't want you to be judged for your sins. But he's a just God, so your sins will be judged. Call upon Jesus. Call upon the great Savior who experienced all that wrath and all that judgment on your behalf because of his great love and mercy. And all you have to do is believe and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And so we see that God, for five verses, paints his judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment has come. Christ experienced judgment for the believers. For those who don't believe in Christ, they'll be judged for their sins. But after we see that God is just because he purifies sinners, He's just because he judges sinners. The last thing we see here is that he is a loving God because he does not change. Look at the final verse, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. At first glance, that verse might not mean a lot, but man, that is packed with God's love. He says, because I'm a God that does not change. O oh, house of Jacob, O oh, family of Jacob, you're not consumed. You see, God is a God that keeps his promises. God is a God that keeps his covenant. 
And God said that he was going to send the Messiah to save, the Messiah to experience the wrath, the messenger of the covenant. And what God is saying is if I was a God that does change, you would have already been consumed, Israel, because of your sin. If I was a God that changed with seasons or woke up and I was in a good mood or a bad mood or a God that was kind of flaky, if that was me, you would already be consumed now because of your sin. But I'm not. I'm a God that does not change. And he says to them, O children of Jacob. And when he said that to them, I believe he's reminding them of what he said in chapter 1 of Malachi. When he said to them that he loved them, they said, well, how do you love us? Right? They challenged God. And God said, I love you because I chose Jacob over Esau. And what Israel was were they were descendants of Jacob. And what God was reminding them is that you're the house of Jacob. You're the ones that I love. You're the ones that I've chosen. And because I love you and I do not change, those are the reasons why you're not consumed. And we can take that verse and we can apply it to our lives today. And we, as if God is saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, Josh Stewart, therefore, you fill in your name are not consumed. Because I do not change. Because I love you. You're not consumed. So we praise God that he is a God that does not change. The reason why all of us in this room are still standing here today and haven't been consumed by God's judgment is because God loves us and he does not change. And he loves us so much that he offered the messenger of the covenant to come and to purify us and to bleach us white and to bleach us with remove all of our impurities. And so he has come. Praise be to God that the messenger has come and he's come to save us. And so God loves you. When was the last time you praised God for his unchanging love? That you praise God that he does not waver or change with seasons. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus, the messenger of the covenant. Praise be to God. And the Bible tells us that God is faithful. That his steadfast love endures forever and that his faithfulness is to all generations. That means it's not running dry. That means that we don't have to worry about our grand grandchildren or great-grandchildren or hundred or thousand years from now. That God's faithfulness and God's love is steadfast and it does not end. And we see that John reminds us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says that if you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Notice the words there. He is faithful and he's just. The reason why it is just to God to forgive you for sins is because Jesus was punished for your sins. And he is just, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll purify you like a refiner's fire. He'll bleach you like soap. Because he's a faithful God, and because of what Jesus Christ has done. So once again, if you're a non-believer, you come to Jesus. Come and be purified. And if you're a believer today, praise God that your sins were dealt with on the cross of Christ. And continue to ask yourself, how is Jesus refining me today? How is he molding me and shaping me? You already have right standing before God. Your eternity is secure. Salvation has come. Justification is there. You're just before God. But how is Jesus continuing to mold you and shape you in your Christian life to look more like him? How is he molding you and shaping you and exposing sin in your lives and leading you to repentance and faith? So if you have any questions on what that looks like or what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
I'll be down front, and I'd love to talk to you. Or anything else that God might have in your heart. Man, what an awesome, just, and loving God that we have. I hope you lead today, honor and glorify Him more with your life, and praising Him with the things that you say and the things that you do. That's right. Man, God, you are just an awesome, wonderful, magnificent, holy, righteous God. And your justice, Lord, it is so fair. But I praise you, Lord, that your justice is met with your love. We praise you, God, that you sent the messenger of the covenant, that you proclaimed him not only 400 years before he came, even before that, we see that other prophets say that he's coming. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God that does not change. And he did come, and he came to purify And we want to worship you in righteousness. We want to worship in a way that is pleasing to you. But you must purify us before we can do that. And once you purify us, Lord, help us to live lives that honor you and glorify you. For those in this room that don't know you, Jesus, Holy Spirit, work in their hearts right now. Open their eyes to the depths of their sin. Open their eyes, Lord, to the depths of what they deserve. But at the same time, Lord, open up their eyes to the depths of your grace. The depths of how good you are and what you've done. The extreme measures you took to save them and redeem them and give them everlasting life. We praise you and we thank you. It's in the awesome, mighty, powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.